Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, to kind of catch you up with where we left off. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now we left off last time looking into how Paul has said that since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God, and in this we can rejoice knowing that we're guaranteed to be with Jesus in heaven for eternity. And then we looked last time we were together also at how Paul then goes on and says that we should rejoice and can rejoice in our sufferings in this life because God isn't angry with us. And since He has poured His love into our hearts by giving us the Holy Spirit, we can know that our struggles or our sufferings will produce God's good purposes in our lives. And I know that's hard for a lot of us to let that truth sink in. We have no trouble rejoicing in the fact we know we're going to go to heaven, but the rejoicing in our sufferings, because our flesh doesn't want to rejoice in our sufferings, but if we really understand that God is for us, and if God's for us, who can be against us? And he who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things, as it says in Romans 8? The truth, when that truth sinks into our hearts, and we're going to touch on that a little bit more tonight in the next few weeks, when the suffering comes, we can be like Paul and Silas who were singing in the jail, in the midst of their struggle. Why? Because they knew that God wasn't allowing this to happen because he was mad at them. He loved them. He had shown it. And everything he allowed in their life from then on was for their good. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. So last time we, we met, though, we began to look at a couple of the good purposes that God has in allowing us to go through trials I'm going to just remind you of the first one that we left off with last time, and that was that God will use our response to suffering to confirm our salvation. Go to 1 Peter again and look at verses, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. We looked at how when we go through trials, it, one of the good purposes is it confirms that we're His. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. These trials have come to do what? Look at verse 6 again. These trials, we rejoice in the fact that we've got an eternity that's guaranteed and kept in heaven for us. But we also can rejoice in our suffering. Why? Because verse 6 says these trials have come to do what? To test your faith and to prove your faith what? Genuine. Do you know the Bible says that there's a lot of people that say they believe, but when trouble comes, they go away because they had no root. Or the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it and they fall by the wayside because they really weren't saved. The Bible talks about how there are those who build their house on the rock and those who build their house on the sand and the rain and the storm and the wind hit both houses. But the one that was firmly founded on the rock is the one that stays. Go to James chapter 1. Look at verse 12. James chapter 1 verse 12 says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Sounds like all of us who are saved are going to be tested. Does that sound right? By the way, what was the first thing that happened to Jesus right after he was baptized? He was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. If God the Father is going to take his own son and lead him into a time of testing, which, by the way, he wasn't done with the test when he was done in the wilderness there, was he? Now, if you look at Luke's account of that, when he, that time came, was passed, it said Satan left him until a more opportune time. And he was continually coming against tests. In the same way, if Jesus was going to be tested, we too should not be surprised that things are going to happen to test our faith. Things are going to happen that are going to make us want to say, where is God? Or why did God? Or how could God? Real faith will stand those tests. Real faith, even though they don't see him, believe in him and are filled with a joy that's inexpressible because we're receiving the outcome of our faith. What's the outcome or the goal of our faith? The salvation of our souls, not a better life. Not a be fix. I'm going to get saved so I can fix my marriage. No, the goal of our faith is the salvation of our souls. Anything else is gravy. And I, I know over the years I've heard too many people in churches. You notice I didn't say Christians. I said I've heard too many people in churches say nothing good ever happens to me. You ever heard that kind of a talk? What have you just said about your salvation when you say nothing good ever happens to me? You're spurning it. Go to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 18 through 25. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, before we go any further, I'm going to ask you a question. How does Paul know? He's been there. Years ago, when I was younger in my walk and was studying the scriptures, I remember asking this one person, what year did Paul have this encounter where he was taken into the third heaven that he talks about in 2 Corinthians 12? And I was wanting to know if there was a difference in Paul's writings prior to 
his encounter of being taken into the third heaven and then after. Wouldn't that have been an interesting study? Well, guess what? I found out that his being taken into the third heaven happened before he wrote any of the books that we have that Paul wrote. So everything he's written has been after he got to see. Oh, but he wasn't allowed to talk about, he says, the things that he saw. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated or set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Does anybody else feel that? Anybody homesick for heaven? How come you're homesick for a place you've never been? Because the one who is there lives within you. You are there. That's another thing that we'll deal with later on, but that, that makes my head hurt. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul said the suffering of this life isn't even worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. He lived his life looking for the reward. He lived his life waiting for the day. We need to keep that in mind as well. Because the mindset of the world is living for now, living for self. And you've even got preachers out there that will say your best life now. Folks, I don't want my best life now. I want my best life there. I want to live for eternity, and I'm going to, praise God. And in the midst of this, as you're going to see tonight, if God had a purpose for allowing Jesus to suffer, I need to be willing to allow him to cause me to suffer for his purposes. So the first purpose that we looked at last time we were together of his good purposes is to confirm your salvation. But another one is this. God uses the trials in this life, our suffering, to grow or to increase our faith in him and to make us more like Jesus. The Bible says that another reason that God has us go through trials isn't just to confirm our salvation, but it's also to strengthen our faith, to make our faith stronger and to make us more like Jesus. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. As you know, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish believers who were thinking about going back to Judaism because they were suffering so for their faith. And he goes on and he says in verse 5, he says, You've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. Now, before we go any further, does anybody remember what he said at the beginning of chapter 12? He's just listed in the Hall of Fame of Faith, men and women of faith, and all they went through and the suffering they went through in this life. And look at chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, look into the future, endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you haven't even yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, you've had it bad, but 
You've not even bled yet. Years ago, I heard a story about this young preacher who went to go see an old preacher. And he was complaining about the people in his church, how bad they were treating him. The young preacher said, they're, they're, just, they're just mean to me. The old preacher says, Did, have they spit on you? He goes, well, no. Have they slapped you? Oh, no. Have they pulled your beard? No. He goes, well, then you're not done. They did all that to Jesus. Why do you think you're going to have it easier? He then says in verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation, the encouragement that addresses you as sons? And he quotes from Proverbs 3.11, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. And besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Now, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been what? Trained by it. The discipline, the shaping, the training. The word discipline, we hear the word discipline and we hear punishment. And unfortunately, that's one of the things I didn't like about the NIV translation of this passage. It actually says he punishes when he quotes from Proverbs 3.11, all those he accepts as a son. And if you go back and look at Proverbs 3.11, it doesn't say punish, even in the NIV. And that word punish is a bad word because if you think God's going to punish you after you've been saved, you don't think Jesus took the full punishment for your sin. But discipline is actually, what's the root word of the word discipline? Disciple. What's a disciple? It's a, it's a learner. And, and if you're discipling someone, you're teaching, you're training. And that's why he uses the human illustration. As parents, Becky and I had the responsibility of disciplining our children. It doesn't mean punishing them. It means training and teaching, having them go through things they thought were too hard, but to prepare them to become the men and women they're supposed to be. When they were little, we taught them how to clean their room, brush their teeth. And if your kids were like our kids, their room would be messy and they'd look at it and they'd be going, I can't do this. This will take forever. But you had to teach them and train them and you had to put them through discipline. And when we played sports or if you're in the military, boot camp was a discipline. It was a train. They weren't punishing you. It was to prepare you and to train you. And in the same way, we've had earthly fathers who trained us and disciplined us and we respected them. How much more should we subject ourselves to our father, the father of our spirits and have his purposes accomplished in our life? Yet when he allows us for his purposes to run laps or to go through trials, we say, why are you being so mean? Well, just like our kids, we thought we were mean when we made them clean their room. We have a reason. We have a purpose. And he says, so that we can share in his holiness. Go to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 28 and 29. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not all things are going to be good, but all things are going to work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's not only making your faith stronger, He's making you more like Jesus. With that in mind, go to Hebrews chapter 5. Look at verses 7 and 8. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Did you catch that? Jesus, who was not only God, but also human, learned obedience through what he suffered. What was Jesus doing or having to do mentally every time he went through a trial? Like Satan coming to him and saying, if you really are the son of God, prove it. Turn these stones to bread. Oh, you don't have to go to the cross in order to die for the sins of the world and have people believe in you. All you got to do is just throw yourself off from this temple. It says in Psalm 91 somewhere that he won't let you be harmed and the angels will keep you from dashing your foot against the stone. What did Jesus have to do every time he was tempted to not rely on the Father? What did he have to do? He relied on the Father. Remember, Philippians chapter 2 says... Even though he was equal with God, he was God the whole time he was on the earth. He didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and he took the role of a servant. Oh, by the way, has anybody heard any kind of preaching nowadays that kind of feeds our flesh and says, you're a child of the king. You can, you're an overcomer. You can just say no to this and you can tell Satan it. No, sometimes God's going to allow that sickness to stay. Paul had to learn that, didn't he, with the thorn in his flesh, whatever it was. And God sometimes says, I just want you to submit yourself to me. I have a reason and a purpose and a plan, and everything I do is good. I got no problem with you asking me to take this away, but you need to be okay if I say no and trust that I'm good. And Jesus learned obedience by even though he could have done something about it, he didn't. When the People are coming to arrest him, and Peter's starting to swing the sword. He says, put your sword away. He said, don't you think I could just call 10, 12 legions of angels? I could just say the word. But how then would Scripture be fulfilled that it must be this way? He humbled himself, and he took the role of a servant. You don't hear that kind of preaching nowadays, because everything's about us, to feed our flesh, to be all that you want to be. How about we just be willing to be all that God has for us to be? If Jesus submitted himself to the role the Father had for him, and we're grateful he did, let's submit ourselves to the role the Father has for each of us. Go to James chapter 1. You're in the book of Hebrews. Turn over to one more book, to the book of James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers. 
when you meet trials of various kinds, there it is again, rejoicing when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, if you're a Christian and you don't go through any trials, are you going to be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing? No. The only way to become all that God has for you to be and to receive all that God wants to reward you for in the life to come is to actually go through the trials. Folks, many of you know that I went through the battle, the battle of cancer in 2017. And when they diagnosed me with a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and the, I, I asked the nurse, I said, well, if I don't do anything about this, how long do I have? She said, less than two years. And so we prayed and felt God said, you got to go through chemo. I had to go through chemo and radiation. I lost all my hair and was sick to my stomach. And, and some of you say, what's the big deal? I know I didn't lose a lot, but I did what I had. I lost. And here's the deal, though. I had in my mind, I am going to go into that infusion room and I'm going to shine for Jesus. You can ask my wife. I had, man, I was excited. I was going to go in there and I was going to let everybody know about the Lord. And I was just, guess what? After a couple of chemo treatments, I would go into that building begging them to knock me out. Give me just enough Benadryl not to kill me, but let me sleep. Because I had to sit in that chair for eight hours and get five different bags of chemo. And the only time I would even get up was when I had so much fluid, I had to get up and take my little tree to the bathroom back and forth. And folks, then I had to go through radiation after all the weeks and of so on of chemo. And by the time it was done... Jim thought he was strong, and I came to realize I wasn't. But my faith grew, and my understanding of who I was and my weakness grew. It was good for me. I don't know about the rest of these bums, Jesus, but I'll die for you. I'll, I'll go, I, I will go to prison and death. Actually, Peter... Uh, um, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to act like you don't even know me. No, 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 no. You don't know me very well. Actually, I do. And this trial that I've allowed Satan to do in your life, because he's asked to sift you as wheat, and I said, yes, it's going to be good for you because down the road, you're going to use it to strengthen the brother. The trial is a good thing. We have to renew our minds and say, okay, I don't love it. I don't like it. But God is going to cause all things to work for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. So if he's predestined to conform us into the image of Christ, we're not already there, even though we've got him within us. There's a process we have to go through to get become more like him. And what is that process? Suffering. Suffering. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be watchful. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout 
the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will humble himself. Sorry, glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Read that again. Listen again in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. And by the way, he can't do anything unless God gives him permission. But when God gives him permission, that's why he taught us in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but if you do, deliver us from the evil one. You control whether or not he's able to mess with me, now that I'm your child. But if you allow him, I need your power to deliver me from the evil one. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we read about the fact that there are brothers and sisters around the world who are going through suffering, there's a part of the globe that comes to our mind right now, isn't there? A couple of days ago, I was spending some time with the Lord in the Word, and I have this daily devotional that I use as one of my different things, and Vance Havner's day-by-day journal that I'm using, he brought up the fact that on this certain day that I was reading, that the disciples were hiding for fear of the Jews in a locked room behind locked doors. But that locked door didn't keep Jesus from showing up. And God impressed on me, and I've been praying it ever since that morning. Father, there are people right now who are hiding in basements and bunkers behind locked doors for fear of the onslaught, the attack. But that locked door won't keep you from showing up. And I've been praying that he would be allowed to reveal himself to these people. How often have we over the years tried to keep people from suffering? The same preacher I love to quote, Vance Havner, said years ago, if someone had given the prodigal son a soup and a sandwich, he'd have never gone home. Sometimes we get in the way of what God's doing by not letting people go through the suffering. There's nothing wrong with saying, please remove this cup. Isn't that what Jesus prayed? Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. And aren't we glad that the Father's answer to Jesus was no? Go back to Romans 5. Look at verses 3 through 5. Not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Didn't we, weren't we told in Hebrews 12 to run the race with endurance? Well, what produces endurance? <laughs> suffering. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's one last thing I want to pull out from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, before we move on to the next verses. We have looked at how God's love for us was demonstrated through Jesus on the cross before we became God's children, and how that should not, should not make us fear God's wrath now. 
But Paul goes on and says something else here. He goes on to say that we should rejoice and live in the power of Jesus' life. Look again at verse 9. Nurses 9 through 11. He says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His what? By His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. We would all agree that Jesus' death was kind of powerful, wasn't it? And the blood of Jesus being shed for our sins was very powerful. But there's an aspect that I'm going to touch on tonight. I'm not going to, I'm going to do my best not to preach on it tonight. Because we're going to be dealing with it when we get into chapter 6, 7, and 8. Where Paul's going to be moving into how to live in the power of the life of Christ now. We've received the, 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 the accomplishment of the death of Christ. But now that we have been reconciled and we no longer need to fear His wrath, we've been justified through His blood, the, pro, the, the, the thing we need to be focusing on now is how to live in the power of His life. We've even, he's even touched on it in passage we already read earlier, in, uh, and Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and following. He talks about how we've been born again into a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All right? So go to with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verses 7 through 11. I'm just going to read to you a couple of passages real quick to illustrate this. We'll deal with it in much more detail later on in our study as we go there in chapter 6, 7, and 8. But in 2 Corinthians 4, look at verses 7 through 11. It says, but we have this treasure. What's the treasure we have in jars of clay? What is the treasure? The Holy Spirit, Christ Himself living in us. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Again, I want to preach on that so bad, but just keep that in your mind for later on in our study of Romans. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 13 through 23. In Him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, 
according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, the preacher in me wants to run with this. Paul says, I've heard of your faith. You're guaranteed eternity. You're sealed by God. You've been given a guarantee that you're going to be with him until the day you acquire possession of it. And then he says this. Now my prayer is that you have the eyes of your heart open. You know, the hope to which he's called you, the glorious inheritance and his power available for us who believe. Oh, and by the way, that's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. And now he's been seated above all rule and authority. And he's been given to who? To the church. We'll go to chapter 3 of Ephesians. Look at verses 7 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, to this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. God wants to display His power, His life through us right now to display His glory to the angels and the demons. And this was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now some of you are saying, Jim, that sounds like the kind of preaching you just said is not good preaching. No, listen. Paul is saying there is a power that's available to us who believe. But that power will not remove the suffering. God uses the suffering to accomplish His purposes, to show His power. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We're going to be persecuted. We're going to be be attacked. We're going to be going through all these things. But they're not going to destroy us. And our response is going to be such through the suffering that the world, and not just the world, but the angels and the demons will take note and say, okay, the fact that Jim Johnson responded to that in that way, I know Jim Johnson. He's not capable of that. God, you got the glory for that because only you could do that through him. I was talking to a friend of mine and he was talking about how a relative of his has just passed away. It was his mother's sister. And he said, I have to be honest with you. She probably was the most amazing, sweet, gentle, peaceful, loving person I've ever met in my entire life. This is He wasn't talking about his mother. He's talking about his mother's sister. He wasn't bashing his mom. 
But he was just saying, this lady was that incredible. So I then asked him, I said, well, she, was she a believer? He looked at me and he said, everything I just said to you wouldn't be possible unless he was, she was. What she was was Jesus. There's no one good. But his power had been demonstrated through her jar of clay. Go to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 9 to 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit that dwells in you. We're going to just stop there. And let me just say, Paul has said in this section of Romans 5 that we just read, that if we've been justified and spared the wrath of God through His blood, much more now that we have been reconciled to God, should we be, what? Think what it says right here in verse 10, For while, if while we're enemies, we're reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Folks, we're going to deal with that when we get into chapter 6, 7, and 8. How to start living now this gospel. Let's not just stop at, hey, I was a sinner. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus rose from the dead. And if I put my faith in him, I'll go to heaven. Let's not stay there. Let's move on now to the things that Paul was praying for. And that same Paul that was praying in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, that our eyes would be open, that we'd know the height, the width, the depth, actually goes into detail in chapter 6 and 7 and 8 into how to live in that power. We'll deal with that when we get there. So let's go now back to Romans 5 and just kind of spend the time we have left tonight moving into breaking this section down. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. He then goes on and says, Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted when there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance and grace of grace and free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, who wants to step up here and explain this section to us? 
We're going to take our time and we're going to break it down a little bit tonight and then pick it up next week. Because it also is going to launch us into chapter 6, 7, and 8. As you're going to see, he starts talking about how in the same way in which what Adam did and his sin was passed on to everybody, what Jesus did is now passed on to everyone and in, for who believe. And then in the same way in which it was quite obvious that what Adam did was now ours, he talks about the fact that what Jesus has done is now ours. And so we're going to get into all that. But for tonight, Paul says that one man's sin passed on to all people, so too can Jesus' one man's act of righteousness be passed on to all who receive it by faith. Years ago, Adrian Rogers uh, was preaching on this passage, and he, he stopped for a second and he said, some of you don't like the fact that you're accountable for Adam's sin, in the sense that because Adam sinned, and Adam's sin was passed on to everyone. Some of you would say, I don't like the fact that I am counted in Adam's sin. I didn't vote for the guy. That's how Adrian put it. And he, he stopped his sermon and he said, you better be super, super glad that you are accountable for Adam's sin. Because if you can be made guilty by one man, that means you can be made righteous by one man. And that's what this passage is talking about. Just as much as one man's sin passed on to everybody, in the same way, one man's act of righteousness can be given to everyone who receives it. It was automatically passed on to us from Adam. But Jesus' act has to be received by faith. But just as one person could affect everyone, one person can affect everyone that receives it. But listen closely. One man, Adam, sinned, and that sin was passed on to all people. All men, it says here, but it's all people. We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Don't let that sink, I mean, don't, don't let that not sink in. You don't become a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. All of us are born sinners. We're guilty well, look at how David wrote it. Go to Psalm 51. We're guilty from the moment, not we're born. We're moment from the, per, the moment we were conceived. By the way, another further evidence that life begins at conception. But go to Psalm 51. Look what David wrote in verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He wasn't saying that the act of him being conceived by his mom and dad was sinful. From the moment I was conceived, I was guilty. And then Paul actually explains this even a little bit more as he goes on. And, and, and well, before I explain that, let me go to Ephesians chapter 2. I really want this truth to sink in because the world today thinks that we're only really bad because of our environment. We're only bad because of bad government. Or, you know, if everybody just had the, 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 the better life that they were brought in the right neighborhoods, they wouldn't do the things they did. They're only, they're only a product of their environment. No, 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 that's not what the Bible teaches. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And by the way, as you're turning to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Adam and Eve, would you say they were in a pretty good neighborhood? Were they growing up in the slums? No. And they were in a perfect environment. And they still sinned. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We've been children of wrath from the beginning, from the moment we were conceived. But then, because God's merciful, he has us pass from death to life. We'll touch on that in a little bit. But I want you to understand this. The, the world says that you become a sinner. No, there's no one good. You've been a sinner from the beginning. Go to Job chapter 14. Look at verse 4. And as I was doing my study, I'd never really seen this verse. But boy, is this true. Job chapter 14, verse 4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. So at, Paul then goes to explain and to prove that everyone is guilty of sin and is a sinner from the moment they're born because of Adam. And he proves it by talking about the fact that everyone from Adam until the time of the law did what? No, well, they didn't just sin, but he said they did what? They died. The Bible's very, very clear that you, the soul that sins, it shall die. Correct? If you don't know what I'm talking about, go with me to Ezekiel chapter 18 real quick. Go to Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll go all the way back to the book of Genesis to lay it out. Ezekiel chapter 18. Look at verses 1 through 4. He says, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you, and that word you is plural, by the way, what do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? And this is the proverb that the Israelites would say. They would say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no longer be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. And the soul who sins shall die. In other words, they were saying, well, if dad's a bad guy, then the kids have to suffer some of the consequences. And that's possibly true in some cases. Yet at the same time, God says to him through Ezekiel, um, no, the soul that sins will die. Everyone's accountable for their own sin. All right. Now go back to Genesis chapter two. And how you square that with generational is there are consequences that affect our children, but generational in the sense of uh, some people try to say, well, my dad struggled with this. I'm going to struggle with that the rest of my life. That's not always the case. Yes, it's definitely people try to say, well, my dad was an alcoholic. That means I'm going to be an alcoholic. No, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Yet, are there consequences for generations to come if I make bad choices? If I choose to cheat on my wife or I choose to do things like that, and it's going to affect my kids. Adam and Eve's children never got to see the garden. So did Adam and Eve's sin affect their kids? Definitely. Were there consequences for their children because of their parents' sin? But this whole teaching of if your parents have it, you generationally, no, no, no. You, he sets us free from the curse. He sets us free. So that kind of teaching, if that's what you mean by generational sins, it, does, it doesn't match with Scripture. So, but go to Genesis chapter two, look at verses 16 and 17. 
As the Lord commanded the man, Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Jump over to chapter 3. Between chapter 2 and chapter 3, he eats of it and all of that. Eve does too. And go to Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He starts listening to the consequences of this sin, and one of them is you're going to die now one day. You were made out of the dust of the ground, and one day you're going to die, and you're going to go back to the dust of the ground. We're going to come back to that in just a second. But now, the Bible's very clear that one of the consequences for sin is death, correct? And in chapter 5, verses 12 and following, Paul points out that we want evidence that sin passed on to everybody, and that there's no one righteous, and there's no one that doesn't sin, that doesn't have this problem. Everybody, from the time of Adam all the way until the time of Moses, when the law was given, they all died. But they didn't break any command like Adam did. His sin was breaking a command. The law came in later, and there were people that sinned by breaking the law of God. But the fact that all those people between Adam and Moses, hundreds of years, that they all died is proof that there was death and that there was sin. And that had been, Adam's sin had been passed on to everybody because if it hadn't, if there was somebody that had missed it, they'd still be living. But let's chase something here in the time we have left. Go back at chapter 2 and look at verses 16 and 17. Of chapter 2 of Genesis, we'll go to verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God says, the day you eat of that tree, on that day you'll die. But then in chapter 3, he says, because you've eaten of the tree I told you not to, one day you're going to die. One way we have to chase this now. Because actually, if you do a study of the scriptures, and we're going to do it hard and fast, there are three deaths. There are three types of death. And the word death always means separation. The first death is spiritual death, separation from God. We already read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. They were alive enough to make trespasses and sins, but they were dead in their trespasses and sins. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verses 17 and 18. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. So, all these people are alienated from God. Why? Because of their sin. They're separated from God. Oh, they're walking around, but they're spiritually dead. And if Adam, the Bible says the moment he ate of it, he would die. He did. He's going to one day also physically die because of it. But at that moment, what happened to Adam and Eve the moment they ate of it? 
there was an immediate separation between them and the Father. They all of a sudden were afraid. They realized they were naked and they hid. They were all of a sudden no longer in that close relationship that they had with God. And no one said anything to them. They just immediately ran and hid when before they never did. The Bible's really clear that we are born spiritually dead. Adam's sin has passed on to you and I to the point that we are born spiritually dead. And at the same time, if we don't get that reconciled through the only way that God has made it to be reconciled before we physically die, we will spend eternity in what we're going to see in the second is what the Bible calls the second death, but that's number three. Number one of the Bible of the three deaths is spiritual death. Number two is physical death. We've already touched on that one. You all, I don't have to spend a lot of time on that one, hopefully. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed for man once to die and then face the judgment. Genesis 3, 19, you're going to die one day and go back to the dust of the earth. So the two deaths we've seen so far, there's spiritual death, Separated from God because of the sin that's been passed on to us. We're born that way. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Even though we walked around and lived, we were dead spiritually. We're one day going to physically die because of this sin. And two, and the third death now that the Bible talks about is eternal death. And I'm going to clarify that for you. Go with me to Revelation chapter 20. This eternal death is also called in the Bible the second death which is confusing because it's death number three in our list, but it's also called the second death. Listen to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Listen closely. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible clearly teaches that in between your physical birth and your physical death, even though you're physically born, you're spiritually dead, separated from God. But during the time that you are physically born and you physically die, you have an opportunity to have this death problem, this separation from God taken care of through faith in the only way he's provided for you to be reconciled. And that's through faith in Jesus's coming to earth, living as a human like you without sin, dying on the cross for your sins and mine, rising from the dead by his own power. And when you put your faith in him, he says, even if you die physically, you will no longer experience that second death. Now, because of time, I'm going to deal with a lot of passages that deal with that at the beginning of next week's study. But let me give you one to just get us started. Maybe two. Go to John 5. I think I can do two passages in three minutes. Let's do it. John chapter 5. Look at verses 21 through 24. John chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, Jesus is speaking. He says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's when we're born again. Made alive spiritually. Even though our bodies may physically die, we will never experience the second death, which is when all those people who have died, who have were dead spiritually, never got it reconciled through Jesus. They physically died. They go to the places of torment, Hades. And then they're at the final judgment brought out of Hades, the fiery place of torment, torment. And they go to the great white throne judgment where they will be standing before God and all the books are going to be opened of everything they've ever done because they've never accepted Jesus' forgiveness for their sins but His payment for their sins. They said, no, nah, I'll take care of myself. I'll come up with my own plan. So therefore, they're all accountable for all the things they've done and they're judged according to everything that was written down of all they did. And then they double check to make sure their name wasn't in the book of life, which is those who put their faith in Jesus. And what happened to them? They experienced a second death spiritually. Why? Because they were brought back into the presence of God and removed from his presence for eternity. That's why the third death mentioned in the Bible is the eternal death. Now, we'll read you this one as we close tonight. Go to John 11. I'm going to read to you verses 25 through 27. We'll break it down next week. This is what we'll pick up next week. John chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, in the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead physically to talk about Jesus and demonstrate Jesus' power over physical life and death and spiritual life and death. Jesus says to Martha, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die physically, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So here Jesus is talking about two kinds of death here. Whoever lives and believes in me, even though he die, he'll live. And he'll never die. Or he'll live even if he dies physically. We're going to deal with that next week when we come back together. Until then, I love you. Thanks for coming.